This is a sermon podcast of the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When I was in Bible school years ago, I had a teacher that told us, um, preacher boys, don't skip the hard passages. Some parts of the Bible are really easy to preach. I could wax eloquently on Psalm 23. You would love a sermon. On Psalm 23. But when it comes to the issue of church discipline, <clears throat> when do you hear sermons on that? Well, the Bible talks about it. Jesus requires it. We've only been delinquent in doing it. There's a number of reasons why. But we're going to talk about church discipline this morning. And I'm not going to apologize when I say that tonight we're going to be talking about conflict because Second Corinthians six or First Corinthians six talks about conflict. And I, I, I say the word unapologetically because uh, you need to be here tonight to listen to this message. I will furthermore say, without apology, there's nothing you're going to be doing tonight more important than being here tonight. So you need to be here. These two issues are what's choking the power out of churches today. We don't care anything about sin anymore. And we would just as soon shoot one another as to help one another. We would rather wound and mutilate our own body. We need to hear preaching like this. I'm not saying that these messages are going to be perfect. There's a lot of preachers who will preach these messages way better than I could. But for the life of our church and for the sake of the name of Jesus, we need to hear these messages. We need to be confronted with these difficult passages. You know, my grandmother, <clears throat> Margaret Allen, was my mother's mother, she had a knack for gardening. This woman could root anything. She could break off any branch, any flower, any bud, anything, anytime, anywhere. I bet she could break off one of my own limbs, put it in some dirt, and she would grow another me. She was that good. Now, for a while, I thought that stuff was hereditary. I thought that because my grandmother was good, my mom was okay at it, well, then surely I'm good. We had a plot of land in a home uh, in the yard where my wife and I lived in North Carolina, and I um, got smart one day, and I thought, well, we need to have this area landscaped. And I researched the plants that would thrive in the conditions of this area in our yard. I carefully researched the proper mulch, weed barrier, borders, 
all the things that would have made this area of land pleasing to the eye when you look upon it. I thought it would be a virtual Garden of Eden. The finished product actually turned out really well. Well manicured, plants properly in place, weed barrier down, mulch spread out accordingly. It looked great for a while. I noticed a weed in it one day. I was walking in the house. Up, oh, it's just one little weed. No worries. I kept on about my duties and my life and whatever. After a while, the other plants didn't grow. They didn't look nearly as healthy. And before long, that one weed turned into a a thicket of weeds and had grown up through the mulch and was choking out the life of the beautiful, healthy plants that were originally planted there. problem was it, it wasn't necessarily that I didn't mind getting my fingers and hands dirty. I, I mean, I've, I've got, you know, cows and farms in my background and crop in the back and all that stuff. I mean, that's not the issue. I just got lazy. There were more important things to tend to. Before long, the weeds had choked out what was beautiful. Same with sin. If you don't deal with it, in its own time, before long, we can ignore it to the point where it chokes out what was originally planted and choke out what is beautiful and what was intended to grow there. You see, the weeds were never intended to grow. I didn't plant weeds. They just came. And so is the life with any church. If we just live long enough as a body of believers, sin's going to come. Through your own life, through outside influences, through people causing division, whatever. It's just going to happen. But what do we do with it when it comes? Now, this is not the only passage where Paul is going to, or where, where we're going to hear about church purity and dealing with sin in the congregation, but this is one of the primary texts of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 5. If you found that text of Scripture, let's stand together. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's only 13 verses. Title of today's sermon is called The Priority of Purity. Would you follow along with me as I read? It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know the little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, a drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. But what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that this text is here by no accident. These words are not accident. Paul meant what he said. And you meant what you said when you inspired the writer to write these words down. This is the word of God. So, Father, you intend for us to learn from this and to let this be a part of our fellowship, to be a part of our church life. God, I pray that you would remove every hindrance from among our hearts and minds that would prevent us from accepting this as your truth. And Father, may we understand that we will be judged according to the Scriptures. We do not judge the Scriptures. Father, I pray that you would fill my mouth and direct my mind to preach and to deliver deliver this sermon and this word in a way that is most pleasing to you and most honoring to you. In Jesus' name that we pray, everyone said, Amen. You can be seated. The greatest lie and the common church member believes today is the lie of salvation by grace through faith without having to change anything about the way that I live. My greatest preacher I look to of all time, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, wrote, Salvation in sin is not possible. It is always, and it always rather, must be salvation from sin. That's what this text is talking about. So let me give you four criterion, four principles that this text affirms and teaches. There are probably a lot more, but I've singled four out that uh, derived right from this text that hit us where we need it most. Number one, the presence of sin should cause the church to grieve and to take action. Look in verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. You're arrogant. Should you not mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, there are some statements, the the, the phrases here, these statements in these first two verses kind of tell a, a pretty sad tale. And it does not leave a whole lot to the imagination, although I will kind of let the context speak for itself. First of all, this was a church that was tolerating a sin that even lost people would have recognized as bad. Now, do we know how much of the non-believers in Corinth knew this? I'm sure many. But I don't think there's a threshold that you have to cross before the, the outside world says, well, wow, that's bad. 
And then the church needs to respond, well, I guess we need to do something about it. What was the sin? You had a boy, young man, sleeping with his stepmother. That was a sin in the church. What was, what was the Corinthian response? Nothing. Nothing. As a matter of fact, they were treating life as, as normal. And, and they were tolerating a willful, sustained, and acknowledged sin. As I've already said, that the lost world would have recognized and did recognize. But the key statement is here in verse 2. They had become arrogant and no longer affected by the presence of sin. When a church becomes no longer affected by sin, let me tell you what that means. It means that we have forgotten what sin will cost. We have forgotten what sin does to the life of someone. We have forgotten that sin destroys, it kills, it maims, it mutilates. Sin is abhorrent to God. And it caused his son to die. When we ignore sin, we forget, in my estimation, we forget every major doctrine of Christianity. Because we have immediately forgotten the atoning work of Christ. When we forget the atoning work of Christ, then we forget about the virgin birth. Because the atoning work cannot have happened apart from a virgin birth. We forget that he was, that Jesus was the, the second of the Trinity. God the Son. And why that's important. We forget about the doctrine of baptism. That identity of our union with Christ. Not in death, but in life. Paul says, church... You need to be crying buckets of tears because you have forgotten yourself. What we do today is this attitude of, well, let's just love them by leaving them alone. Let's not confront them. Let's, let's not do anything because that's actually a more, more, more loving thing to do, Right? I mean, surely if, if we say something, we'll come across as, you know, causing trouble. Or They were so open-minded and loving that their pride had condemned them as a congregation. So in these opening verses, we're presented with a challenge. And the challenge is this. Does sin bother you more or less now than it did when you became a Christian? Because for you to even accept Christ, you had to be bothered by sin. As I grow, I become more and more bothered by it. I hate it. I hate its presence in my life. I hate the past of what that sin did in my life in years before. I absolutely hate it. And to think that some of us have become so arrogant that we're just going to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to it as if it's not going to affect us. It already has. The Bible knows that this 
is a problem, and it compares it to something. I want you to imagine I've done weddings. Oh, my, I've, I don't know. I've lost count of the number of weddings. <clears throat> but I have never done a wedding in which the, the bridal party comes in. You've got a groom, and they come, and the best man, they come stand in their tuxedo. They look great, you know, flower. And then you have those little ladies prancing down the aisle. They're the bridesmaids and the maid of honor. And they got their pretty little dresses. And then swing open the back doors. The bridal march plays on the organ. And in walks the bride in a t-shirt and blue jeans. Wouldn't that be awesome? But what if she gets halfway down the aisle and she just looks at herself and says, Oh my, what have I done? I have forgotten to put on my wedding dress. That thing I have been shopping for for 22 years, I have forgotten to put it on. Mark in your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 2. In verse 32. Can a virgin forget her ornaments? Or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me. Days without number. It means that this Corinthian church has forgotten that they were the bride of Christ. They had turned such a blind eye and a deaf ear to sin. The Bible says later on in, in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? It's talking about God's people. No. The Bible says they were not ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Have we become so immune to the presence of sin that our cheeks can't even turn shades of red anymore? Number two. True love for people means making difficult but biblical choices. Verse three. Let me go back to the latter part of verse 2 when he says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the, what's the next word? You say it together with me. Flesh. So that his, what's the next word? Spirit may be what? Saved in the day of our Lord. He said, do not be afraid to love this man where it counts. Because at the end of the day, I could love you to death. Do you know what that means? Pastors are guilty of this. 
Loving a congregation to death means not preaching like I should. Loving a congregation to death means not saying some things and having convictions and not standing for some things that ought to be stood for. Loving a congregation to death means that I'm going to do every little whimsical thing you ask of me. They were loving their people to death. But according to this text, this difficult decision to take take this man and to excommunicate him from the body, from this congregation, he says you're going to hand him over to Satan. In other words, he's going to feel the full force of his sin. He's going to see what it's costing him. And you're loving this man to the point that we want his flesh to be destroyed so that in the day of the Lord, this man may be saved. You're loving this man as you should. Pastor, it's extreme. It's overkill. It's wouldn't removing someone be unkind. Depends on two things. Number one, who will you love the most in your life? And on what basis will you love people? I love King Jesus more than any of you here, including my wife and including my children. And the most important way that I love you is for the salvation of your soul. I don't care about your wardrobe. I don't care about your cars. I don't care about those things that will not make a difference in eternity. I care about spiritual immaturity. I care about you and your fellowship with King Jesus. I care about those things because my first love is King Jesus. And you will have a whale of a time trying to convince me from the scriptures and with plain reason that that is the wrong way to love you. If we were to love those in our midst during these times of sin and Willful sin and I think we would actually find ourselves with a little bit more of a Holy Ghost power amongst us. You see, church, I have never known a congregation in my entire life where the Lord does not honor pursuing him and standing for things that ought to be stood for. Problem is, we've stood for a lot of things that just have no relevance in Whatever We will stand for colors of carpet. We would, ra- we would rather argue for days on end over what instruments ought to be in a church service. Meanwhile, people are busting hell wide open, living next door to us. And people struggling with addictions. Wondering what to do about... This pressure that I've got in my life when I go to school this week. I've I've never heard a church argue over how to best disciple believers. I have never heard a complaint lodged. Pastor, I just don't think we're using the right curriculum to make these brand new believers more mature in their faith. You better believe I'll get phone calls and letters and emails and text messages. Pastor, why didn't you do this? Why can't we do this? Pastor, you did this. Church, we're, we're, we're doing this wrong. We're doing... That's not loving. 
That's why I believe that these two passages that we're studying today are one right behind the other. You can't have any type of wrestling and fighting with purity and not also have to deal with some sort of conflict, which is the very next topic of this letter. True love for people means that we've got to make difficult decisions, meaning they're not easy. I can assure you that dealing with people in the midst of their sin, especially when they don't realize they're sinning or they refuse to admit it, it is difficult. I'm not saying that any part of this is easy. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to decide on who you want to please most in your life. Do you want to make your, your friends and family happy? Okay, do you want to keep your friends? Or do you want to stand for truth? Sometimes they will be mutually exclusive. Not always, but sometimes. Do you have a love for appearances more than anything else? That's deadly too. Book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's not only descriptive in its context. In the context of this letter to the Hebrews, this was prescriptive. This was something we are to emulate. If we're going to love someone, if we're going to love one another, it, it means discipline. It's how I show my love for my children. Number three, ignored sin in the church holds the work of Christ in contempt. Look at verse six. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that the little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity of, tr- uh, of truth. Now, this is talking about a specific uh, observation from something that happened in the Old Testament, a festival. Uh, it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, if you remember, do you remember when all the Israelites were in Egypt? Remember that time of captivity? Do you remember all the plagues that came? And right there towards the end, Pharaoh would not let his, uh, God's people go. And so the one final plague was about to come, the, the plague of the death of the firstborn. And God gave his people specific commands on how to eat and prepare. This is kind of the context of what's happening here. And without kind of getting and in, in, in staying back in the Old Testament for, uh, for too long, what the command was and what these instructions were were, were were this. In normal practice, you and I in our home would have, would have had uh, uh, pieces of dough, right, that we would have used throughout the week. And in, but we would have had a, a certain piece left over, okay, and because it was left over, uh, it, it was, and we would use it from one week's baking to the next because it's going to ferment. And when it ferments, it will, you know, mix in with the rest of the stuff. And, and that's what causes it to, to grow. It's kind of like yeast and, you know, cause it to grow or, or rise when you, when you bake it in the heat. It was a useful practice, but in the end, it was not hygienic. It was kind of dangerous as with most things that are left to ferment. 
dirt, disease could be passed on from week to week because of this unleavened bread. That's the imagery that's happening here. And Paul tells this church, because Christ is our Passover lamb, we just observed the Lord's table last Sunday night. And part of the element is unleavened bread. Because Christ is our Passover lamb. We don't have to continue this practice anymore. Paul says it affects the church spiritually. When you look at people who are the unleavened, that is, they're impure. They have the stains of the world on them. The dirt, the the, the sin, dirt, the disease... When it comes in, what does it do? It leavens the whole lump. Like that bed of flowers that I so desperately tried to make beautiful. I left it alone and what happened? The weeds overtook it. Sin by its very nature, when we leave it unattended, would take us over. Paul says, you celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the leavened, unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What does that mean? Sincerity, first of all, means it, it, it means that we're going to act with pure motives. It literally, the Greek word means it's tested by the light of the sun. Have you ever, have you ever noticed some things you can test it by holding it up to light? Okay. To see if there's any impurities in there. That, that's what sincerity means. It means as a congregation, we're not on a witch hunt for certain people. We're not on a witch hunt of certain sins. It just means that together we take all sin equally as evil. And that it's willful, persistent presence in the life of a believer. Therefore, also in the life of a church, we've got to deal with it. Not because of who you are, not because of your last name, not because of how long you've been here, not because of any position you hold. We do it because our motives are sincere. We hate sin, not the sinner. And also by truth, it means our alignment with the word of God. Some of you choose. Some of you choose ignorance on this based upon your thinking Feelings, popularity, or pride. That's why we as a church resist this. We're afraid to swallow our pride. We're afraid that we'll hurt someone's feelings. We're afraid of popularity. We're afraid that we'll lose someone. Or we think through it way too much. Finally, this text tells us that Jesus determines the limitation of our membership. I'm talking about church membership. Jesus determines the limits of our membership for the sake of our testimony and also our safety. Look at the final uh, paragraph of this text. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then 
you would need to go out of the world. What he's saying is, I'm not telling you not to witness and evangelize because those are the people I want you to go to. Because if I mean for you to avoid those types of people out into the world, you might as well just be dead. You might as well just be in heaven or wherever you would spend eternity based upon your relationship with Christ. Because that's the world. So I'm not telling you that, but what I am telling you is this. Not to, verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, that's worshiping something over and above Christ, doesn't matter what that is. It could be your pride, it could be your possessions, it could be your family, it could be your spouse, it could be a lot of things. It could be anything. John Calvin said, our hearts are nothing but idol factories. And he's right. Reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Maybe as a parent, you at one time or another had a naughty child. They did something and you had to punish them. And maybe the method of punishment that you chose or the method of discipline was time out. You need a time out. Properly administered, I guess there's a place for that. Psychologists will tell you, though, that there is actually a, a, a strong suggestion that this mode of removing someone from a group in an isolation <clears throat> can actually have a bearing upon someone's psyche and emotional health and emotional state. It's the reason why you put the hardest criminals of criminals in solitary confinement. It is a separation from community that sometimes is just punishment enough. Paul says in order to help teach someone the value of association of being a believer in, in the body of Christ, sometimes you just got to let them be gone. You cannot have anyone who bears the name of brother if they're guilty of these things. And I don't believe that he was confining this list of sins as only what he mentions. But he says, don't even eat with them. You're out and about, you see them at the local restaurant, you choose a different table. You say, Pastor, that just sounds mean. It sounds cruel. Okay. I will admit, yeah, this isn't a rosy picture at all. But here's what I'm going to trust. And it's gotten me into trouble from time to time, but it's never caused me to lose anything. I'm just going to choose to take God at his word and to say that if that's what we are supposed to do, then I'm going to do it. Because I got a feeling that if my, if my, listen, if I'm sincere, in other words, I've got pure motives and I'm doing this according to the word of truth, God will work it out and we will rejoice at that brother or sister who was able to rejoin the fellowship because of confessed sin and repentance from that confessed sin. That's what I want more than anything else. <clears throat> but he does it also for our safety. He does it also for our safety. Let me just kind of give you a for instance. 
Imagine that we had a uh, recovering addict of, of alcoholism. Miraculously born again. Went through our membership matters class. Went through some discipleship material. Baptized. He's joined a Sunday school class. He's, his influence has already affected his family. So now his wife and, and children who he's been alienated with, they're now coming but he's had years and years of alcohol abuse in his past. We rejoice in that, but you know what? <clears throat> we'll find it okay to have a church member go out, get drunk, go buy their cases of beer and liquor and alcohol, doing these things without any regard to the testimony or to the damage that he could be doing to a weaker brother, which the Bible clearly expresses has got to be a motive behind what we do. And this recovering alcoholic says, well, if he can do it. Church ain't said nothing about him. <clears throat> then certainly can I enjoy a measure of it? What do you think would happen to that man? Every alcoholic began with one drink. You see, we have to remember that some of us may be recovering or have strong attachments to or have had a long history in a particular sin. And if we allow that to be persistent in the life of someone else without doing anything, what do you think that will do for that other brother and sister? Talk about killing two birds with one stone. <clears throat> he ends this message in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? And he's right. We, this type of practice doesn't belong to the pagans. They, our first concern has to be evangelism with them. We, I, I can't, I mean... They're going to do what they're going to do. That's why I don't get mad at people in a business, in a secular business, for not saying Merry Christmas. I could care less about the color of the cups served at Starbucks at Christmas time. They're not Christian organizations or Christian companies. Let them do what they want to do. But Paul says when those people come in here, after having heard and responded to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you better bet we have a sovereignly authored duty to do some judging amongst ourselves. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. You purge the evil from among you. That's why I preach and teach a regenerate covenant membership. I'm not trying to be on a soapbox, but I do believe this is just my personal conviction. If it would just lift up to me and only to me, I would have every single member of our church sign our church covenant as a prerequisite for church membership. Holding us accountable to the way that we live our lives with one another. 
Because what Paul is eventually telling us here is that we do not live our lives in a vacuum. What we do affects one another. So if my life affects someone else, don't you think the effect I would want to have will be one of godliness? Of course it would be. And it should be for you too. I'm going to give you three things to consider. To, to prepare for maybe a time of response. And, and don't be fooled. Our time of response, it may begin when the musicians come up and when I pray, but it doesn't end just because I have a closing prayer or we sing a song with our hands and head on out and go to Denny's or wherever. I expect you to respond to the truth of God's word at all times. So to the regenerate, I'm talking about to the saved. I'm talking about to those of you who would say, I am born again, pastor. Reconsider your definition of love. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying, think about it. Consider the fact that maybe the way you have been loving people has been wrong. If you, if your love for the body does not include a disciplinary approach to sin, you cannot love as Jesus loved. It's just impossible. To the nominal believer. I call the nominal believer those who've you've made a you've prayed a prayer maybe you've signed a card you'll come to church you'll follow the Lord as long as it suits your tastes and as long as it's convenient to you as long as you're not traveling as long as you know I'm not running a fever of um, you know ninety eight point nine right as long as my you know all of my fingernails and toenails are not ingrown I'll be here that's a nominal believer I mean you kind of barely associate yourself. Ask yourself if Jesus is truly Lord of everything in your life. Or is there some leaven still left that needs to be destroyed? To the backslider. To the sinner. Put yourself in the shoes of this young man. Do you really want to be handed over to Satan? Do you really want your troubles to increase? Maybe we should put all of ourselves in that boy's shoes. Do we really not and will we really not prefer repentance right now while we have the time? While there is an occasion to get things right with the Lord, will we not want to choose that now? Or do we want to feel and to experience the full cost of our sin? Church, yeah, I mean, y'all been through something. Since I've been here, before I've been here. We'll go through it again. Churches all over this land, they've been through stuff. They'll go through it again. I'm just telling you that something's got to change. Something's got to change. We've got to have a Holy Ghost awakening. It's just all that's... It's, I can assure you, there ain't no president that's going to fix your problems. Let me just kind of step on some toes. I don't really care who gets elected. My home's in heaven. This place isn't even my home. 
I'm an alien according to Peter's epistles. All that stuff just doesn't bother me. Because my King Jesus comes first. I don't care what country I live in. I don't care what freedoms I have or don't have. The church, you've got a choice. Corporately, but also individually. And I can't make these choices for you. You can choose to find me and send me packing because you don't like what you're hearing. But you've got a choice to make. Do you like the way things are just going? Or will you pick up a mantle that has been handed down and passed along from generation to generation that people, listen, I, I know we make a big deal about Memorial Day and Veterans Day, but there have been a lot of people who've shed their blood for the continuation of the gospel that we better not ever forget. And it's been handed to us. And we've got a choice to make. You can choose the popularity of Hilliard. Popularity of Folkestone or Callahan, or whatever street you live on. You can choose all of those things. Let's choose King Jesus together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would um, look beyond my faults as a fleshly pastor and preacher and help us to square ourselves with your word and what it requires of us. God, your promises and your divine protection and all the glory of living a Christian life, those texts abound. And and would that I would preach them all. But Father, sometimes we encounter texts of Scripture that are not the easiest pills to swallow. The truth is not always easily digested. But God, it is important as that old rugged cross. And it's because of that old rugged cross. It is because of an empty tomb why these things are important. So, Father, while we still live, while there is air in our lungs, while there is life to live as a community of faith here at First Baptist Church of Boulogne, I pray, God, that we would commit to getting our priorities right. to love one another as we should and to do what that love requires. But we can't do it without a heart that is pure. We can't do it without sincerity and a knowledge of the truth. Father, my challenges have been made clear, and but I leave the response to you. It has nothing to do with how many people come to this altar. Father, what it means is are we really willing to let you be the Lord of our life in every area, in everything, every word? 
God, I can't make that choice for people. They have to make this choice for themselves. I only pray that by your sovereignty, you control all things. And in that mysterious union between our minds and our heart and your sovereignty, God, may we do what is right. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org. Thank you.